Okay, last lecture of the semester, we're going to talk about the big question, how did this little group of Jews following a prophet, an apocalyptic prophet around Galilee who was then executed uh, shortly thereafter in Jerusalem become what we now call a major world religion. How did that happen? Because the whole first hundred years we've talked about in this class of what we now call Christianity, of course it's not even called Christianity until the letters of Ignatius. There's no term Christianity in the Bible itself. And as I've said, the Apostle Paul certainly did not use the term Christian. He probably would have rejected it because that would have implied that he was doing something else besides just bringing the Gentiles into Israel. He thought he was continuing Israel, not making another religion. So how did th this ragtag bunch of people following Jesus and then these different house churches become what's called now a major world religion? We'll talk a, a bit about that uh, today. And then I'm going to talk in the class with a little bit of stuff on uh, theory of interpretation that we've hit on over the semester. I should also remind you that um, at the end of the class, we'll be passing out the instructions for your final exams. I'll leave about 10 minutes or so of time for us to talk about that, so you'll have plenty of time to ask questions about the final exam <coughs> once you get the instructions. And finally, since this is your last chance, I'll be sure and stick up your hand if you want to ask a question or make a comment. Uh, this is the time if you want to throw things and be, uh, you know, rebel against the course, this is probably the best time to do it, your last chance. So ask any questions you want also about any of these topics and we'll talk about that. From the teachings of Jesus to the gospel about Jesus, that's one of the first things that happens. We've already seen that going on. The historical Jesus, and if you really are, have not had enough of this and you want to take a historical Jesus course, I'm going to be teaching a seminar for undergraduates on the historical Jesus in the fall, uh, open to anybody. And we'll have a full semester to, to deal with these problems of the historical Jesus in a seminar setting. The, hi the historical Jesus did not talk about himself as the Christ. We just don't have him doing that except in the Gospel of John. It may well have been that he thought he was the Messiah or that he thought he was preceding the Messiah. Somebody must have thought that he was a messianic figure because that's what the Romans executed him for. So either he, he may have thought he was the Messiah or some of his disciples may have hoped that he was Messiah. Uh, but he didn't go around preaching about himself. The topic that Jesus talks about uh, the most in the Synoptic Gospels is actually the kingdom of God, this thing that was expected to happen in the future. So the historical Jesus first is, is talking about some gospel that it's, a, it's good news, but it's about this coming kingdom of God that's gonna, that when God's going to break in. But very quickly after his death, uh, as we see already by the letters of Paul, the earliest material in the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus, the, gospel, the good news he proclaimed, became the gospel about Jesus. In other words, the good news was who was this man and what does that mean for us? So that's the first major change that happens in early Christianity on the way to it becoming Christianity. And then you've seen the growth of the Pauline churches. So the first thing that happens is it moves out of Palestine and it moves throughout the Greek-speaking world in the West. And very early, we don't know by whom, the Church, a church was planted in Rome because it's already there by the time Paul writes to the Romans. It's been there for, for years. We've seen how there's a diversity of early Christian groups. In fact, your final exam will require you, with you choo you'll choose one of two questions. It will require you to address this issue that we've been hitting on all semester long about how diverse this early movement was. What did, it, what did different groups look like? 
We've also talked in the last lecture about how did some of the institutions of the church start gradually being developed, such as having a bishop, having priests, having deacons, uh, and then the establishment of the Lord's Supper as a piece of liturgy and ritual that becomes celebrated throughout these different groups. The practice of baptism being pretty much universally practiced by these groups very quickly. We also have seen uh, the part of the beginning of the rise of Christian scripture. We've, we've not gotten to the canon in this course, the actual development of the canon, because that doesn't happen until the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries when the list of these books that become the New Testament canon become more solidified. But we've seen the beginnings of this, right? We've seen how uh, different gospel writers will use other gospels. We've seen how the writer of Second Peter will talk about Paul's letters as scripture. So we've seen a collection of Paul's letters coming about, and we've seen the Gospels coming about uh, as a collection in the second century. And then one of the th major things we've seen the beginnings of that will become more and more important for the nature of Christianity later is its separation from Judaism. As I've repeated several times in this course, the earliest people who followed Jesus never thought they were starting a new religion. They thought they were simply continuing the right behavior of Judaism. And Paul himself thought he was continuing Judaism. It's just he thought that he was bringing non-Jews into it in, an, in a fairly new way. But we've seen the beginnings of how in the letter to the, he to the Hebrews, we've seen the, letter, the sermon uh, end with the author making this uh, weird statement about let us go outside the camp as Jesus was executed outside the city of Jerusalem and the sacrifices were done in Exodus outside of the camp. So we as now followers of Jesus will, should go outside the camp, sounding like he's meaning we're going to leave Judaism. We have a now a superior uh, liturgy. In the second century, this separation of the church from the synagogue will start becoming clearer in certain places, and finally what you'll end up with after the fourth, fifth, and sixth century is a Christian church that's not Jewish and rabbinic Judaism that comes to look more like what Judaism has looked uh, since that time even different from the Judaism as it was in the time of Jesus. The second century, therefore, sees some important changes. First, as I've said, Christianity is still remarkably diverse, even in the second century, and it does grow. How quickly it grows numerically is really impossible to say. We don't have the kind of demographic data to know how much growth, how much numerical growth there was in the Christian church in the second century, but we can obviously tell it's happening in different places by, if nothing more, the increase in li written literature that comes about in different geographical locations during the second century. Connections among these different groups also started growing. As I've, as I've tried to make clear, we don't really have any reason to believe that the churches that Paul founded were that closely connected to, say, other churches that may have existed in Syria or in Egypt or in Italy. Paul did want his churches to remain closely connected to the church in Jerusalem, and th that's precisely why he started this collection uh, among the Gentile, predominantly Gentile churches of money to give to the poorer church in Jerusalem. So Paul had this already was starting this connection, and he's writing letters back and forth, and we've seen already that other churches seem to be writing letters back and forth. These connections start coming a bit more networked in the second century also. We've also seen how Christian churches start in the second century imitating Roman political and social structures. They start imitating the Roman household and their government, which is having the monarchical bishop, the one ruling bishop over a town area, 
uh, we call it the monarchical bishop because the bishop becomes like a king, a monarch, uh, the single bishop over a town. So that starts happening in more places in the second century. We've already seen it a bit in the letters of Ignatius. It becomes a lot more prevalent by the time you get to the end of the second century. Jewish Christianity starts dying out uh, in the second century. We do have some Jews who follow Jesus. They take Jesus to be the Messiah. Some of them don't seem to believe that Jesus is divine. They, just, they take him to be a great prophet and maybe even the Messiah, but not, that doesn't make him God necessarily. Uh, and these Jewish churches are still there in the second century. We gradually see them become less and less uh, visible uh, after the second century. But we've already seen some other things in the second century that are going on. I've talked in the class about Gnosticism. So the Gnostics, uh, they, they didn't, there was no church of the Gnostics. There was not a movement that had a sign and a website somewhere that said Gnosticism. But we use the term as an umbrella term for Christians who held on to certain kinds of mythological views about Genesis and angels and the creation and different divine figures. So that's one thing that becomes um, more visible. In fact, we believe that most of the texts that, that we find in the Nag Hammadi library, we know that the library itself seems to have been written in the fourth century, the actual texts, but we believe that a lot of those texts were written originally in Greek in the second century and then they were translated into most, mostly Coptic by the fourth century. So, but they, these, this literature that modern scholars place under the bigger rubric of Gnosticism, it starts being written in the second century with elaborate mythologies, with different layers of heavens, with different angels or beings uh, ruling those different layers, and different mythologies about creation and how, cr how the created world came to be. There's also a very important figure that some people will call Gnostic, a Gnostic, but uh, we now tend not to. Valentinus was a Christian scholar who lived in Rome in the middle of the second century, and he gathered around him uh, other Christians, and they indulged in sort of a very philosophical way of thinking about Christianity and the gospel. They look Gnostic in some ways, but they don't seem to have a belief in two gods necessarily that, that uh, other Gnostic groups do. So Valentinus, though, represents another kind of Christianity that becomes very visible in the second century, and it remains important for a couple of centuries after that until all these kinds of uh, Christianity are declared heretical later in the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries, and they're run underground. But Valentinus is a major figure because you can see him as a highly educated, uh, we don't know a whole lot about him historically, biographically, but you can just tell from pieces of the history that he must have been a highly educated, philosophically educated individual who was trying to do, to raise the mythologies that he found in Genesis and in the Bible to a level of higher philosophical platonic special, uh, speculation. So that becomes very visible. We've already talked also about Marcion. And I've said that a lot of scholars take it that when Marcion came up with his own canon of the New Testament, his list of New Testament, which included the, the Gospel of Luke, which he edited to take out all the Jewish stuff in it that he thought was, shouldn't be there, and the, the letters of Paul, which he also edited, and just those, that list of things was his sort of New Testament, his Christian canon, and he threw out the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, because that was too Jewish. So Marcion also then is being kicked out of the church in Rome and being declared a heretic in the second century, but he founds churches that exist then for a couple of centuries after his death, uh, in especially in the eastern uh, part of the empire. So these are all different kinds of Christianity that are really boiling up 
uh, in the second century as church churches are trying to figure out what does it mean to be Christian but not necessarily Jewish anymore. And that one of the other figures that we haven't talked about is Montanus. This was a prophet who went around declaring that he had a special gift of the Holy Spirit, meaning that he was the Holy Spirit. There were two women who also followed him, and they all claimed to have prophetic gifts and to be able to uh, speak, have the Holy Spirit and God speak directly through them. They developed quite a following. They were very ascetic, very strict, so they forbade marriage and these sorts of things. And so they, they were practicing a certain kind of early asceticism and monasticism, but with this very uh, uh, um, pr strong prophetic stream of it also. They were very active in the second century also, and then people like uh, uh, Augustine would later have to sort of fight with these people. You also have in the second century the first people that we really can say are Christian philosophers. These are, you could say that Paul had a rhetorical education, and every once in a while you can see stuff in Paul's letters that looks a bit like what you'll see in, say, philosophy, stoicism perhaps. Uh, there, a friend of mine, Charles Engberg Peterson, a professor at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark has written a lot trying to prove that Paul's ideas are heavily Stoic uh, and probably deeply influenced by Stoicism itself. Most of us don't buy that, but we think that you might see traces of Stoicism in Paul's writings. You might say that you see traces of Platonism in, say, the letter of the Hebrews or in the Gospel of John, but you don't find any New Testament writing that looks like it would have come out of a real philosophical school. It doesn't have that a uh, high level of philosophical speculation or knowledge that we have. In the second century, we do have, though, some, some individuals arising who style themselves as Christian philosophers, and they style Christianity as itself a philosophy. And one of the most famous is Justin Martyr. Martyr, of course, is not his, his last name. It's not like Justin H. Martyr. Uh, Martyr is his nickname because he was martyred around the year 150 in Rome. Justin claims, uh, and we have several writings of him that survive as along with an account of his martyrdom, uh, Justin claims that he shopped around when he was a young man to all the different philosophies, and he couldn't find any that really satisfied him until he found this Christian teacher, and he attached himself to that Christian teacher, and that uh, teacher introduced him to the philosophy of Christianity. So you have uh, a person who he goes around in robes, he grows his beard long, he carries scrolls around to so he can look like a philosopher. At his trial, when he's being condemned, he defends himself as a philosopher, like philosophers had had to defend themselves against Roman emperors uh, often in the first uh, for centuries. So Justin Martyr is one of the first truly sort of philosophical Christian. Uh, another uh, that existed a little bit later this is Clement of Alexandria. He was uh, probably head of a catechetical school, a Christian school in Alexandria in Egypt. He wrote toward the end of the second century, so around the year 200 is, is when he's writing. And Clement also clearly has a very good philosophical education. His writing is, is excellent. He, uh, he tries to make Christianity, for example, he, he downplays apocalyptic kinds of stuff in Christianity because he knows that that doesn't look very philosophical. He downplays the emphasis on poverty, and they, that there's lots of parts of the New Testament which basically teach that if you're rich, you won't go to heaven. Remember how the letter of James basically seems to condemn rich people just out of hand, not just rich people for being, uh, when they're evil and not using their money badly, but just by being rich itself, you're condemned in some early Christian documents. 
Clement writes against that kind of stuff. He, he, he writes stuff showing how you can be a rich person and enjoy nice things and still be a Christian. So he's writing at, at the end of the second century, again, making Christianity into something that looks much more like a philosophy. So these things are going on in the second century, and that's going to change Christianity to a great extent because what becomes traditional Orthodox Christianity is heavily influenced by philosophy, especially by the Platonism that's around in late antiquity. The very notion, for example, of the immortality of the soul that you get in a lot of popular Christianity, it comes from Platonism more than it does from anything in the New Testament. The other development that's going on at this time that will become very important is martyrdom. I've talked about that last time, and of course Justin Martyr is one of the examples of this. So there's no, there's no general empire-wide uh, persecution of Christians in the second century, but you do have sporadic persecutions arising against Christians in certain areas. So in Rome, at certain times, you will have certain people martyred, usually leaders or bishops or uh, people like Justin Martyr who are uh, key figures. Martyrdom, therefore, starts developing its own ideology and its own theology in the second century, which will become very important for later monasticism and, and the way Christian becomes in the Middle Ages. You have an, this idea I talked about last time that martyrs are especially close to God. Martyrs go straight to heaven. They don't pass, you know, they don't have to, you know, uh, go to, par to paradise or any place else first. They go straight to heaven on being killed. Um, confessors, that is, people are condemned to martyrdom but not martyred, uh, also become especially important as figures who are considered to be closer to God. These attacks on Christianity and the way Christians respond to it with this sort of martial, almost warlike ideology of martyrdom, the martyr becomes a soldier in the army of God in the way it's depicted in the second century. And this is even picked up by enemies of Christianity. So Celsus, the very famous, um, no, Galen, I mean, the uh, very famous doctor, there is a Celsus I'll mention too. Galen's the most famous medical writer of antiquity, and he's, he's, uh, tons and tons of his medical, medical writings still s survive, uh, and it takes forever to read through them, even in an English translation, much less in Greek and now an Arabic translation that a lot of them survive in. Galen actually mentions Jews and Christians a few places in his writings, and one of the things he says, now he thinks Christians are stupid. He thinks they're crazy because they believe in a God who gets angry. Well, God doesn't get angry. That goes against the very definition of God. So he believes that Christians are superstitious, uneducated. He thinks that, that it probably only succeeds with the gullible. But he still admires Christians because of the way they face death. So even Christians' enemies recognized that they had a certain bravery and courage in, in being totally willing to face death. Celsus was a contemporary also living in the middle of the second century. He wrote against Christianity also, and, uh, wrote against Christians, and he will admit, though, that they uh, seem to have a certain better bravery. He just says they're foolhardy in being willing to throw themselves on a sword uh, the way they do and throw themselves to the beast, as we've seen Ignatius uh, do in his letters. Let the beast come to me. So Celsus and Galen admire Christians for the courage and the almost military discipline they have, even though they despise them for being, they believe, gullible, superstitious um, bumpkins. So you have, for the first time in the second century also then, educated non-Christians taking notice of the movement and writing about it and having an idea about it. And then, in response to this kind of thing, you have the beginning of apologists, people like Justin Martyr himself, who wrote an apology for Christianity against its detractors, either against the governmental-type detractors who said it was uh, seditious because it wasn't loyal enough to the emperor, 
or philosophical detractors who said it was superstition. And on, uh, Celsus famously said, the only people these people can convince are old women and slaves and kids. No you know, educated man would fall for all this bunk. But you have Christian apologists, therefore, writing apologies in the second century, trying to defend Christianity against these attacks. So all of that's m already in the second century, 100 years after Jesus, is, is turning this little Palestinian movement into something that's going to start looking more recognizable to us. But it still takes a long time. In the third century, you have developments that are very important. You have the real rise of monasticism. Now, all the way from the beginning of Christianity, we've seen that some Christians practiced asceticism. You know, the word asceticism just comes from the Greek word exercise. But it's come to mean any sort of self-discipline for a higher good, the avoidance of sex, the avoidance of, of food as much as possible, the avoidance of wine, drinking only water. So different groups in the ancient water, including in the ancient world, including some Jewish groups will be called, for example, water drinkers because they will avoid wine out of this. Uh, it's not because they felt like these things were in themselves sinful. It's that they were using these deprivations of pleasures in order to train the body and train the soul. Again, they were borrowing from Roman military imagery and military ideology. So Antony, uh, St. Anthony becomes famous. He's not necessarily, but he, he gets a reputation later for being the first one to go out in the desert and live totally by himself and discipline his body. And he gets attacked by demons all the time. Demons are always going out to the desert to find him and, and disguising themselves as, as young, lovely girls or boys and, and trying to seduce Anthony. And so he has to fight these demons all alone out in the desert in the middle of the night. But he does, how, you, how do you fight demons and things like that? Well, you buffet your body, you buffet your soul, you make your will strong. And how do you do that? Well, you avoid sex, you avoid desire, you avoid uh, rich food, you avoid wine. So training the body and training the will like a soldier or an athlete, they use both these uh, athletic imagery and soldier imagery to, to describe the training. This all becomes a highly elaborated uh, ideology and theology starting in, this, in the third century. And so you have not only groups of monks and sometimes nuns living together, we, that's one kind of uh, uh, monasticism we, we call conobitic or cenobitic uh, or, or koinonia monasticism, that is monks or nuns living, not monks and nuns living together, uh, although that seldom happened, but sometimes did. But usually monks living together or nuns living together. And then you have with, uh, with this movement, like I said, with Antony, of uh, some monks going off into the desert and living alone uh, and that sort of thing. So you have both these forms of monasticism starting to develop in the third century. This will become hugely important, as you know, for Christianity all the way through the Middle Ages. You couldn't have Europe as we think about Europe. You couldn't have had the learning, the vast learning, and the text, and, and the classical stuff, the, all the classical texts, the passing on of literature and in philosophy from antiquity, you couldn't have had any of that without monasticism through the Middle Ages. That begins, see, in the third century when you have these movements really taking off. And they become hugely important and hugely popular uh, for people. You also have in the third century the first really empire-wide persecution of the church an attempt to actually destroy it and get people to deconvert and to denounce Christianity and to sacrifice uh, to the emperor. And this happens with uh, the, empire, the emperor Decius. So we call this the Decian or Decian uh, persecution. It happens around the time, the year one, uh, 250, so right in the middle of the third century. And 
This is the first time that there's an empire-wide attempt to suppress the Christian church. Also in the third century, you have one of the most uh, brilliant and famous Christian scholars of uh, all of history, actually, Origen. Origen was later considered to be a heretic um, for some of the teachings uh, that he came up with about, for example, he taught that even Satan could be converted in the end. He, he believed that all created, created beings would be brought back up somehow into God uh, in the end. This, and he had views about the nature of, uh, of God and the nature of human beings that later would be s deeply suspected of being not quite orthodox enough. In his own day, though, in the third century, he was completely orthodox. Uh, he had actually been trained uh, in probably the catechetical school in Alexandria that I mentioned before that Clement uh, probably headed up. He started his own school then in Palestine, and that's where he spent the rest of his life in Palestine. Origen was a great biblical commentator. He was the first one, for example, who took all the different versions of the Greek, of the Old Testament. For example, the Hebrew of it, the Septuagint, which was the most famous Greek translation, but then parts of other Greek translations like by Theodotion or Aquila. And he, he would put these in parallel columns. And this was a, a remarkable sort of technology for studying the Bible, to be able to have all these things in parallel columns, to, to be able to compare side by side. He did that sort of thing. It's called the hexapla because it had six columns of the Old Testament. He wrote reams and reams of, of uh, commentaries on different books of the Bible, most of which don't survive, but uh, we do have quite a bit of it. And Origen practiced this uh, way of interpreting Scripture I illustrated for you from the med medieval period, that Scripture always has more than one level of meaning. In fact, you remember you read some of Origen's commentary uh, when you read that chapter from my book, Pedagogy of the Bible. So Origen represents in the third century um, a new, very, very strong uh, rise in the level of Christian biblical scholarship. He's also very philosophically educated, so he's part of that too. So the, the tradition of commentary and high level of Christian scholarship also becomes much more visible in the third century than it had been before, especially through people like Origen. The fourth century then brings us to basically where I'm going to stop for uh, much detail because it's in the fourth century that you have the triumph of Constantine as the soul, he beats all the other rivals to the throne. The, the, the empire, the Roman Empire by this time, by the year 300, had been divided up into two different basic empires, the west and the east. And there was a, an emperor for each one, and then there was also a Caesar for each one. So there were four rulers who ruled the Roman Empire in the year 300. Uh, two emperors, one of the west and one of the east, and two Caesars, one of the west and one of the east. Constantine went to war with uh, the other guy on the other side, and he won. He was actually in the west in the beginning. He won. He reunited the empire, east and west. He built his new Rome. He didn't, he didn't take Rome anymore as the capital. He moved the capital to Constantinople, named after him, of course, the city of Constantine, or what we call Istanbul, or Byzantium was its, its uh, ancient name also. So this is, when we, this is basically where we start talking about the beginning of Byzantine Christianity, because it's named after the town Byzantium, or Constantinople, or Istanbul. That becomes the capital of the Roman Empire uh, that goes on for then. Constantine also wanted to stop all this feuding about what was Orthodox Christianity. So he uses the power of the emperor's throne to force bishops to come together in several different councils. 
the most famous of which in 325 is the Council of Nicaea. And of course, this is where we get the term the Nicene Creed, which if you're Roman Catholic or Episcopalian or uh, several other kinds of Christianity, you may recite the Nicene Creed at, in, on certain holy days or in church. It's, this is the longer creed which talks about Jesus being fully man, fully human. It brings in the Trinity. So you have Trinitarian theology becoming a bit more solidified at the Council of Nicaea. It didn't win the day because throughout the fourth century you still had fights among different bishops, some people not accepting the Nicene Creed. Years later you had the the, uh, another creed uh, pronounced at Chalcedon, so that's called the Chalcedonian Creed. And all of these were attempts, though, promoted by the emperors. See, the emperors wanted to use Christianity to solidify a one empire again and to keep it from being split. And if you, you couldn't do that if you had different groups claiming to represent the right Christianity and claiming that everybody else represents the wrong Christianity. So the real push for what counts as orthodox Christianity and the bringing of more unity to Christianity, which we've not seen, right, in this semester. We've, we've noted how you don't have what you would call uh, correct Trinitarian doctrine in the New Testament. It's just not there. You've got all kinds of views about Jesus that would later be declared heretical. They're still there in the New Testament, and Christ what Christians do is just, we just read kind of carefully and interpret it a little bit slickly so that you know it, it makes it look more uh, orthodox than it actually is. But that's because there was no orthodoxy that could claim to rule uh, different Christians who call themselves Christians throughout the empire. This is what starts changing in the fourth century. Like I say, they don't succeed. So you have debates about orthodoxy for centuries, but it's with Constantine in the beginning of the fourth century, and then his, he had a long dynasty, his, his, uh, his progeny, his sons and then their sons and their sons uh, retained the throne uh, for years after that. And so you, you had this Constantinian dynasty that was able to bring a good bit of solidity to the Roman Empire in the fourth century that it hadn't enjoyed in the third century. And therefore, they used this to sort of bring about Orthodox Christianity as the single form of Christianity. That's the most important uh, change, therefore, for the fourth century. But how do we get, uh, after that, of course, as you know from your history, uh, the empire splits again. And later you have the split between Eastern Christianity, which is represented by those churches we call Orthodox, located mainly as with the, Greek, the, the authority of the Greek Orthodox Church, but of course you have Orthodox churches in each of the nations of the East. So you have Russian Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy, and Syrian Orthodox Church. You have different Orthodox uh, communities uh, in the East. And then Roman Catholicism in the West. And that split, of course, is still with us. That starts happening in later antiquity. What is, but notice, it's still not what anybody would call a world religion. Now, the very term world religion is something that has only come about in the 20th century. And it was... a uh, it was a term that was invented when Christians were exploring around and seeing that there were other ways of being religious and how do you want to categorize these things. So around 1900, some scholars invented this guy, well, there's world religion and then there are local religions. You know, li African religion is not a world religion, it's just of certain different kinds of paganism, they thought. Uh, and they thought, well, uh, Judaism is not a world religion, it's a, re it's a religion of the Jews. And by this very definition, it's an ethnic religion Therefore, it's not a religion that is any for anybody in the world. That's why Jews don't go around missionizing and trying to convert everybody in Asia to Judaism or everybody in Africa to Judaism. But they said Christianity is different. Christianity believed that it was the one true religion and therefore uh, launched in the 19th century all these missionary activities. And it was in the 19th century that you had 
uh, mainly Protestants at the, in the 19th century, really trying to convert the whole world to Christianity and sending out missions. This, of course, had started in the beginning in the 17th century with Roman Catholics in, in uh, the, uh, North America and South America trying to convert the Indians and trying to set up colonies. So the conversion of the Indians in North America and South America, mainly by Roman Catholics to Roman Catholicism, and then later the, the attempt in the 19th century by Protestant churches to convert people all over the world, uh, really does make Christianity start looking like a worldwide phenomenon. But that's not really until the 19th century, see, that that happens. Before that, Christianity is basically the religion of Europe. That's why Europeans still to this day, even if they're not religious, even if they don't consider themselves Christian, they may consider themselves completely atheistic, but they see Christianity as part of the very fabric of European identity. This is what's leading to the big debate about whether to admit Turkey into the European Union. There are a lot of people in Europe, even good liberal people who are open-minded and don't necessarily have anything against Islam, who don't want to have Turkey as part of Europe. And one of the main reasons is because it's not a Christian nation. It doesn't have this, and of course most of their nations aren't really Christian in the sense of having the majority of people observing Christianity, but they still have this idea that what it means to be European is some connection historically with Christianity. And that's quite true because Christianity was not a world religion. It existed in Europe until the modern periods. So, but with the idea that there are other world religions that happens with colonialism, Christianity starts defining itself as a world religion. So the first scholars who talked about this term said, well, there's only one world religion, Christianity. All the rest are local religions uh, linked to, to some particular geographical area. And then they started saying, well, okay, wait a minute. Buddhism kind of, they kind of liked Buddhism. They thought it kind of looked a bit like Protestantism. So they said, okay, we'll let Buddhism be a world religion also. So for a while, around 1900, the two world religions recognized were Christianity and Buddhism. And then gradually they started saying, well, maybe, um, maybe Islam is because it's actually not, you don't have to be an Arab to be Muslim. And you can see Muslims existing all through you know, Asia and that sort of thing in Africa. Uh, so maybe Islam is the third world religion. And then kind of more for ideological purposes, they said, well, we'll let the Jews in. You know, so Judaism can be a world religion also because you don't actually have to be in one location to practice it. Hinduism was a problem because the very word Hindu is a made-up term for a religion because it just means Indian, right? This was just so hin Hinduism is a modern invention to a label to put over whatever Indians and in whatever people in the subcontinent practice that relates something to something that we would call gods. We're going to call that Hinduism. So Hinduism gets invented in the 20th century, and then that gets to be another world religion. So then you get this ideology. If you had taken a, a class in world religions or an introduction to religion in, say, the year 1980, you would have probably read a textbook that would probably list as the undisputed world religions five. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. Buddhism. Now, does Confucianism count? Well, some textbooks would say, yeah, well, no, no. Does... Uh, you know, what do you do with paganism? Just, you know, what stuff that people just worship all kinds of gods of, you know, trees and rocks and things. Well, so, but this, the whole category of having world religions and having a list of them becomes something that really is only developed in the academic study of religion in the 20th century. So, if someone asks you the question, how did this little movement started by this Jewish prophet in Galilee, but when, how did it become a world religion? You really, the honest, most honest question is to say, well, it didn't really happen until scholars invented it in the 20th century. 
because that's when the very category of world religion came about for us to use. Of course, if you wanted to say, well, when did you have start having Christians in or all over the world, not just in Europe? Well, you'd have to say starting in the 17th century with the uh, missions to North and South America, and then really in the 19th century with the, with the missionaries, especially from England and North America, uh, going to China and going to Japan and going to all over Africa. So when you talk about when did this thing become a world religion, probably about the 19th century would be an, a good answer. But that's counterintuitive to most of us. The la last question I'm going to talk about is, <coughs> nah, we're out of time. I was going to talk about why did Christianity grow before Constantine. Obviously with Constantine, you get the emperor promoting this religion now. And there are various theories about what caused it to grow before that. Some people have said because they forbade abortion or, um, and, uh, uh, child and uh, birth control, contraception. Most early Christians seem to think that contraception was wrong and abortion was wrong and putting out infants was wrong. Some people will say, well, it's because they promoted the family. I don't particularly buy that because you've got all these monks and nuns running around too, not reproducing. Um, some people have even said, well, when Christians themselves write in this period about why they grow and why people are flocking to them, it's because because we're better healers and exorcists. We're better than Asclepius at healing people and exorcising demons. So Ramsey McMullen, retired historian right here at Yale, has written famously about this, that apparently in the second, third century, Christians were just really damn good healers and exorcists, and that may be why they grew uh, itself. So the question of why Christianity grew before then is a hot one that, that a lot of historians are even right now debating. Okay, are any questions about that? All right, I'm going to cut the lecture there because I want to pass out the final exams. I think we've talked enough about, in previous classes, the difference between historical interpretation and theological interpretation and modern interpretation and postmodern interpretation. That was what I was going to end up on, but I believe we've covered that enough, and you can always ask me questions about that later at some point if you like. So let's pass the exams out, please. Any questions, though, while they're doing that? This is your chance. Yes, sir. Why we think Rome was persecuting Christians? Where was your question, what evidence do we have that they were doing it, or why, why were they motivated to do it? Why were they motivated to do it? Well, it's, it's a very good question, and, and but when you realize that so much of the power of Rome was built on ide uh, the ideology of the emperor. Romans really did believe that, that they were the most pious nation on earth. And one of the th this is why whenever the Roman, the Roman army went to another country, they would always sacrifice to the local gods because they believed the local gods protected them and caused growth. So the Romans would sincerely believe that if you don't sacrifice to the gods, if, you don't, if you're not a pious person, the gods may punish you. Well, what happens then if you have a bunch of these Christians running around who refuse to sacrifice to the gods, refuse to sacrifice to the emperor? Not only is it a threat against the emperor himself, it's a threat against all the people. So, in, and it's also just a matter of patriotism. What would happen to you right after 9-11 or even now if at a Yankees game, where, when they said stand up and we're going to sing the Star Spangled Banner, if you refuse to stand up, you st sat down, you kept your baseball cap on your head, and you started singing Happy Birthday instead? you're going to get beat up because <laughs> the locals just won't like it. Well, that's the way it was a lot with early Christians. It was the locals who felt like what they were doing was dangerous. It tore against the social fabric. 
of Roman society, and it offended the gods. So they had a lot of reasons to actually try to suppress Christianity. Yes, sir? Do we know why Constantine converted? Do we know why Constantine converted? He says it's because he saw a vision right before the battle. Uh, scholars debate that. Uh, some scholars say he, he converted because he looked around and he saw that this was, although it was a minority movement, it, there was no way that this was a majority, it was a vibrant movement that was going on in Rome and in the Roman Empire, and maybe he said, that's something I can use. He was already an admirer of the sun god, of the, and he so was moving toward a certain form of monotheism where the sun was the only god. And so some people say it wasn't that big of a jump for him to switch that to Jesus. And so some people say he had this political idea that it would be a smart thing to do, and then he made up the vision later. So there are different reasons. We don't really know truly his psychological motivations for conversion. Okay, yes, sir. Okay, the question was, what was the nature of persecution? Was it really throwing Christians to the lions and that sort of thing, or was it more like destroying Christian texts? It was different things at different times. A lot of times it was crucifixion or killing people, torture to get people to confess. Uh, sometimes, especially in the Decian persecution, there was an attempt to get to force priests and bishops to turn over Bibles and Christian literature. And in fact, uh, people could save their lives by giving up Christian books or Christian Bibles and they would be destroyed by the authorities. So it, it took different forms like that. And sometimes it was just less overt pressure. You know, you couldn't get promoted, you couldn't do certain things. Uh, sometimes people would try to get you out of the Roman army if they found out you were a Christian. So that it took different forms. Yes, sir? The institution of what? The papacy. Well, it was originally simply, uh, he asked about the institution of the papacy. It was originally simply the Bishop of Rome. But as you might imagine, pretty early in Christianity in the third century, bishops of the most important cities just became more important. So the bishop of Jerusalem was important because Jerusalem was important. The bishop of Alexandria was important because Alexandria was important. The bishop of Constantinople was important because it was Constantinople. Likewise, the bishop of Rome was important. And there was struggling among different major bishoprics about which one would be uh, leading. It so happened that the bishop of Rome was still considered the center of the earth for a long time. And so gradually it just came that the bishop of Rome just sort of held preeminence among all other bishops. And it was informal that it, it developed. Uh, the, the real uh, recognition of the Bishop of Rome as sort of the Pope in the way we think of it, that actually has to go into the Middle Ages before it starts developing. And you don't, for example, you don't have papal infallibility declared as a doctrine until Michael, the 19th century? Uh, early, 20th. early 20th century. So um, I'll have to defer to Michael on Roman Catholic history because that's one of his specialties. But um, so when we think of the Roman papacy, the, the papacy now as being sort of the infallible pope who, who uh, has, is kind of has full say over everything, that really is almost uh, a development that starts in more in the medieval period and comes into the modern period. So in the beginning it was just, he was just recognized as the, the head, the, the sort of recognized uh, more respected bishop. All right, let's talk about the finals. You have two questions on your final, and you get to choose, option A and option B. I'm not going to read all of this. You can uh, talk to your section leaders, email them, talk to me, email me if you have questions about this. The things that I want to stress are, are a few things. Don't go to the library. 
If you need things like a concordance, that's great. Use a concordance. Use a Bible dictionary if there's something you just don't know the meaning of a word or a concept. But don't go look up commentaries because already we've gotten papers from, from some of you that it's clear that what you did was you went and, went and read some book somewhere in the library that told you about something in the New Testament. Chances are it's bullshit because there's been more shit written about the Bible than any other topic in the world <laughs> for the last 2,000 years. And you probably, even after taking this semester course, you, you, you may not be able to tell the good stuff from the bad stuff. So you don't need other scholarship to answer these questions. These questions are designed so that you can use Bart Ehrman's textbook, the tools we've shown you, and the notes from class, and just your own brain, and the, the primary text you've been reading. You can answer these questions yourself with what we've given you in class. So that's one of the main things is don't try to go to the library to get answers to these questions. Use your brain. Um, I'm going to stress the length. We always said eight pages, but some of my teaching fellows have been complaining that uh, y'all have creative ways of either stretching or shrinking eight pages. And so there's a word limit, 2,500 words. So we're still looking for eight pages double-spaced, but not to exceed 2,500 words. Use your word counter on your software now. Uh, the papers are due by 5 o'clock, Monday, April 27th. You may email them uh, as an attachment to your teaching fellow if the teaching fellow has given you permission to do that, and I think they all did. Um, other, if you want to turn in a hard copy, please do so at the Religious Studies Department at 451 College Street. Both of the questions address the kind of issues we read all semester long, so they shouldn't really be a surprise. Several times we've talked about how did Christianity spread geographically. And when I gave the lecture on Acts, I explained how Acts gives you a schematic outline of the growth of Christianity. So taking that one lecture uh, on Acts and the, and the readings that you've done at that, and then pull things from other lectures and from other things in the semester, sort of thinking about, well, now what kind of Christianity would promote the sort of um, uh, letters of John? What kind of Christianity would look different? And use other of these writings to say, well, I think maybe this kind of Christianity may have developed a bit differently. You can focus on doctrinal issues. You can focus on social structures or forms. You can focus on ideologies. It, many of the issues that we raised up this semester, it's your choice. The main thing is, though, just to show how Christianity did not develop in the smooth, schematic way that it's presented in the book of Acts. The second question, I've given a couple of lectures where I stressed a whole lot more Christology, what Christology is, uh, the nature of Christ and how different early Christian documents tend, seem to be working with different Christologies. So what this question is to, it, you've given three columns of text, primary texts, and it's, it's a Chinese menu kind of thing. You're you have to choose at least one source from column A, at least one source from column B, and at least one source from column C, and you can use any others too. You're not, you're not restricted to this, but you have to use one of each of those uh, sources in order to construct this answer of illustrating the diversity of Christologies in early Christianity. Any questions? We do not accept or read late papers. They just get a flat zero. If you do need an extension, ask for it ahead of time, not at 5 o'clock on Monday. All right? We will, your teaching fellows have the authority to work with me and grant you an extension, but you have to ask for it ahead of time. But otherwise, we expect those papers to be done by 5 o'clock Monday. Okay.